You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We're in Revelation chapter 11 today. It's been a little while since we've um, been able to look at the actual trumpets being blown. You'll remember at the end of chapter 9, um, we looked at the sixth trumpet being blown. Um, and then there's that interlude that takes place after chapter 9 with Revelation chapter 10 and the angel coming down with the little scroll that's given to um, to John to eat and to prophesy about. And then Revelation chapter 11, we've been looking at the two witnesses and their proclamation um, of the gospel and the um, the martyrdom that comes upon them because of that. And uh, we kind of tied that in as being a, a um, symbolic picture of the church as a whole and the responsibilities that we have uh, until Christ comes to proclaim uh, that good news. We see in verse 14 that the second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And so that leads us into um, our text for today. Um, but just kind of recapping some of the application points from the past couple of weeks. Um, from that two witnesses sermon, we saw our mission is to proclaim a message of repentance and to accept delayed vindication, realizing that his glory is more important than our immediate safety. And so we talked about trusting in a God who protects us spiritually. So for us that are believers, God protects us spiritually. He keeps us saved. He keeps us persevering. He keeps us holding fast to the faith. Um, God secures us. He seals us with the Holy Spirit. So we are protected spiritually from the moment that we transfer from darkness to light. And we we are preserved for eternity, right? So we're protected. We have God's protection upon us spiritually. But then we saw that God's protection physically only extends to a certain point. Ultimately, until our ministry is complete, we see these two witnesses being uh, protected. They can't be harmed. They can't be hurt until there comes a point where God says your ministry is finished. It says in verse 7, When they have finished their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit, makes war on them, conquers them, and kills them. So God's spiritual protection over believers extends for all eternity. Once we're saved, God keeps us saved. He protects us spiritually. We're spared from his wrath. Physically, we are protected up until the point that God is finished with our lives here on this earth. And then God takes us home. And so uh, we're protected physically up until uh, a point that uh, it still meshes with God's purposes and his plans. From an application standpoint, uh, last week we had our application Sunday, and I gave you three challenges to do last week. One, Uh, to take our discussion on idolatry and to talk to your accountability group about your specific idols. We had a really good discussion time in my accountability group this week talking about the idols that we struggle with, things that we oftentimes give our focus and attention to in our life. Um, If you haven't done that, I would challenge you to do so, to have that conversation with your accountability group. What are the things that you are prone to give your worship to other than Christ? Secondly, we talked about deciding on an individual that we can be so intentional with the gospel that that person is either led to Christ or ultimately uh, we become a torment to them. Not in the sense that we become a, um, uh, an, un- an unkind person or uh, offensive to them based on how we are, but simply that the message continues to go forth from us that as, we're, as described here in Revelation, these two witnesses became a torment to a lost and dying world. They rejoiced at their passing because the gospel oftentimes is offensive. It oftentimes calls people to repentance, people that love darkness rather than light. And so I told you, challenged you to decide on one person that you can become intentional with moving forward with the gospel in your life. And then number three, we talked about uh, our need to study and to ingest the Bible like we see um, John doing as he eats the scroll. Our responsibility to study the Bible. Um, and I challenge you this week to for those of you that may be thinking, man, I don't, I don't really know how to study the Bible, that it starts with you making an effort to do so. And so I challenged you this week to sit down, to attempt to study the Bible, to get as far as you could into that process, and then to share your struggles um, with me so that I can reach out to you, get other people to reach out to you, and to help in that process. I wanted to kind of come back to that point um, because I think there's probably still a lot of people out there that are struggling with studying the Bible Um, And so just kind of giving you a chance to evaluate where you fall on this spectrum. First of all, uh, the first issue that has to be addressed is the need issue. Are you motivated to study God's word? Do you see the relevance of God's word in your daily life? Do you see the relevance for prioritizing it and studying it 
um, as a part of your daily life. If not, man, nobody can really help you in teaching you how to study the Bible. There's not a desire to do so. Um, So you may fall into that category. You're not even concerned as to whether or not you can study the Bible or not because you don't see a need to. Secondly, the time issue. Are you intentional? We must see the necessity of God's word in our daily lives. Um, Are we prioritizing time to sit down and study God's word? Um, Because you may know how to, you're just not being intentional to do so. Um, And that's a whole separate issue than teaching you how to study the Bible. It's teaching you time management and teaching you the priority of God's word in your life. Number three, the ability issue, which uh, I don't know how many of us really fall into. I think oftentimes that's used as a crutch for why we don't study the Bible by saying that we don't know how to, but there certainly is an ability issue. We must be able to see the natural to understand the supernatural application in our daily lives. There is a, a process of being equipped to know how to study God's word, to know where to go, to know how to study, to know how to read it, to know how to take the natural, the, 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 the words that are given to us, and to see the supernatural aspects of that. And, and thankfully, as Christians, we are equipped with the Holy Spirit who gives us the power to do that. Um, but there's a process there, too, of learning how to study God's word once you've realized the need, once you've realized the, the, the time and the uh, necessity of doing so, then we can work towards the ability issue. Um, so I would continue to challenge you. Uh, for those that have, that have not done this, who have not tried, who have not then reached out to me or one of the other elders to let us know that, man, I've attempted to do this and I just don't know how to study God's word. I, I, I've prioritized it. I've set aside time to do so. I just don't know what to do once I'm there. Uh, we would invite you and encourage you to reach out to us and to let us know about those struggles. All right, let's get into our text today for Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to go ahead and put the summary sentence on there, but I do want to read our text to us once again this morning. Revelation chapter 11, verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Our summary sentence for today, Jesus is coming to establish his reign by rewarding the faithful and destroying the wicked, which gives us great reason to celebrate. Jesus is coming to establish his reign by rewarding the faithful and destroying the wicked, which gives us great reason to celebrate. For our kids, Jesus is coming back, and that is reason to celebrate. We see this worship service ensue here in heaven as uh, the the 24 elders who are representative of the entire church. We talked about that back in Revelation uh, chapter 4. If you want to reference your notes that we did um, several, uh, probably several months ago now, Revelation chapter 4 verse 4, we were first introduced to these 24 elders. We talked about them probably being symbolic of the entire church with the 12 disciples and the 12 apostles being represented there. Um, They are worshiping God at the announcement of this seventh trumpet. They are falling down on their faces, worshiping God, giving him thanks, who he is, who he was, for he has come to take his great power and begin to reign. Jesus is coming to establish that reign. He wants to reward the faithful, destroy the wicked, which gives us great reason to celebrate. Just to remind you, and I want to reference back, um, we've seen several of these worship services break out in heaven for various reasons. Back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne. They worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Revelation 4, we see this worship service in heaven, and the focus, the attention is being given to God as our creator. We worship God because he has created all things. By him all things exist. He's in charge of things. He is guiding things, directing things for his purposes, and it deserves our attention. It deserves our worship, uh, this idea of God being our creator. 
And so we, we challenged you back then in, in referencing this that we, we have a responsibility to worship God as our creator. But secondly, we see in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, more singing and more worshiping. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Revelation 4, they're worshiping God who creates and sustains all things. Revelation 5, they are celebrating the Lamb who was slaughtered and who redeems the nations through the gospel. Right, so we have God as creator being worshipped. We have God as savior being worshipped in both of these chapters. Now we fast forward all the way to Revelation chapter 11. We see God once again being worshipped, but we see him being worshipped as the almighty, the one who ends this world with his triumphant reign. We give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. We see God's judgment against the nations. We see God rewarding the faithful, those who fear his name, destroying those who have sought to destroy the earth. Different reasons for celebrating God, all important. Celebrating him as our creator, as our savior, ultimately as our coming king. This passage that we're reading here in Revelation 11 ultimately fulfills a passage that we looked at just recently back in chapter 10, verse 7. It says, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. This is the fulfillment of the gospel, right? It's the fulfillment of all things in history pointing to this great day when Jesus comes to rule, to reign, and to judge. It's also the introduction, I believe, of the third woe. We see, um, let's go back to uh, chapter 8, verse 13. We had been kind of plowing through the the trumpets with the first four. And then in verse 13, it says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. I really think that it ties the woes into the last three trumpets based on that passage. The eagle crying out, woe, 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 be prepared for the coming trumpets that are about to blow. We see that first woe taking place and coming to an end in Revelation chapter 9, verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. You fast forward to uh, chapter 11, verse 14. We see that second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. There is some debate about what the actual third woe is. Some people believe that it's the seven bold judgments that are coming in chapter 16. Some believe it encompasses all the events from chapter 12 to 14. Other people would say it encompasses all of the events from chapter 12 through chapter 21. I do think that it probably is contained, the third woe being the the verses 15 through 19 here in chapter 11, tying it directly to that seventh trumpet. Um, The idea here is that, yes, there's celebration and rejoicing about the woe, but man, it is certainly a woe to those who are a part of the nations raging against God and his people that judgment that comes upon them as being destroyers of the earth. So we'll understand the context of the third woe being here in the seventh trumpet because I do think the eagle cries out, woe, 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 about the three trumpets that are to come. All right, we talked about the elders here that are represented being that entire church picture that we saw in chapter four, verse four. They are celebrating the victory of Christ as he comes to rule and reign. We also see in verse 15 a proclamation statement for why they even begin to worship. Um, It's the grounds for their worship, worship, that Jesus is coming to make things right. Coming to make things right is what we see here. Um, It says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. 
I think this passage parallels Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. We're actually going to read that later on today. But I think it parallels what we see in Revelation chapter 9, or 19, verses 1 through 10. And we'll see some of the parallels as we read through that uh, a little bit later. But let's jump right in. And I don't, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in this passage today, which, which is different kind of from the norm. We're not going to spend a ton of time here because I want to kind of get to the end. And I want us to spend a little bit of time worshiping Christ, worshiping God for who he is in response to this, what we're seeing here in this passage. And so to do that, we're going to actually spend some time reading through um, some large portions of scripture together from the book of Psalms and from the book of Revelation, and then closing with one final song, because I do believe the best application for this passage is to sing and to worship God for who he is and for what he is to be in the future. All right, so let's jump right in here. With number one, celebrate the coming reign of Christ. And for our kids, you have the exact same notes today with the outline. So I did go ahead and underline the word for you in your notes. Celebrate the coming reign of Christ. The seventh angel blows his trumpet. There are loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, worship God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and you have begun to reign. We celebrate the coming reign of Christ for several reasons. One, we celebrate his coming reign because he will bring an end to this corrupt world. Christ will bring an end to this corrupt world. Christ is in the process now of bringing all things into his subjection. We, we, we talk in, in, in terms of God being in, in control and ruling and reigning now, which is absolutely true, right? God, God rules and reigns now. God is sitting on the throne. There, there is not a, a belief that, that Satan uh, rules and reigns in any way outside of God's authority. So while we talk about this world being under the rule at times of the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians talks about Satan, he always is in subjection to Jesus. Satan can't do anything without that, that permission, basically. But there is coming a day where Satan's influence will be completely removed. All things will be in subjection to Christ. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. We just don't realize that yet today. Even though God is ruling and reigning, those things have not yet occurred. I want to reference two passages for us to see that a little bit better. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the passage that's kind of known as the resurrection chapter in Scripture, the arguments for the resurrection and why the resurrection is so important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So Paul's been building this argument, man, if Christ isn't back from the dead, then we're foolish, we're, we're silly, and, and, and it doesn't make any sense for us to believe and follow the things that we do. But Christ has been raised from the dead, Paul says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So Jesus serves as that first fruit. He's resurrected. We have hope of resurrection because of his resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Here we're told that Christ is still defeating uh, enemies. He's still, he's, still, uh, he's still overthrowing the rule of others. Ultimately, death is this great enemy that still exists, that we are awaiting Jesus to defeat forever. He's defeated it personally, right? He is back from the dead, giving us this great hope of resurrection. But man, we continue to see lost loved ones die around us. We continue to see death in this world. It's a, it's a nod to the idea that Christ has not finished that work yet. When he comes, the dead will be raised. We will be transformed, right? The destroyers of the earth will be judged. The faithful will be rewarded. We'll be ushered into a state where death no longer occurs, we long for this. We look forward to this. 
Hebrews chapter 2 is another passage that talks about this a little bit. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Man, the author of Hebrews talks about the fact that all things are in subjection to Jesus. We just don't really see that yet. It's coming. There's a day that's coming where we will realize that. We will be able to participate in that. We will experience that. It's not today yet. We look forward to that day. Revelation gives us a picture of that day actually happening when all things come under the subjection of Jesus, ultimately death being defeated, and he sets up a rule and reign that's different than what we see today. It's different than what we see today. He exercises his power differently in the future than he does today, where Satan and death and sin are completely removed. We celebrate that. We celebrate that Christ is coming to bring an end to this corrupt world. We also celebrate because Christ will bring an eternal righteous kingdom with him. He's coming to bring an eternal righteous kingdom with him. At some point in the future, we will no longer refer to him as the one to come. I don't know if you picked up on that in us reading it several times already today. That Jesus previously had been referred to in in three different uh, aspects. Back in chapter 1 of Revelation, Uh, Verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Down in verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If we fast forward to chapter 4, verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That is to come aspect is, is uh, clearly missing from the description here as the 24 elders are, are, are singing and celebrating. It says, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. And it's absent because he has come at this point. John is getting a glimpse of a state of history where Jesus is no longer the one who is to come. He is the one who has come the one who has taken his great power and has begun to reign. It's no longer a future hope at this point that John's seeing. It's a reality. It's an experienced reality that Jesus has come with all of those promises. At some point, he will take up his reign and never relinquish it. That's hard for our minds to wrap around because we've talked so long and, and obviously believers far longer before us I mean, we spend this long anticipation of Jesus coming and to think about a day coming where Jesus does come and then there's never a day where he leaves. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's hard to fathom a day that could actually happen where where 
Everything is in subjection to Jesus. All peoples, nations, and languages are serving him properly. It's a day that we look forward to. It's a day that we can celebrate as we anticipate it coming. John gives us a glimpse and says, man, I've seen a picture of it. I've seen a picture when Jesus is no longer the one who is to come. He is the one who has begun to reign. We celebrate the coming reign of Jesus, but we also celebrate his coming judgment. We celebrate his coming judgment. And this is where the the woe aspect, I think, is applied here. 24 elders are praising him for being the one who comes to reign. But verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. We celebrate the coming judgment of Christ. First of all, we see the destroyers will be destroyed. This is God coming to judge righteously those that live in their sin. These are people who come to destroy and pollute the earth with their sin. We're going to read this passage in in fuller context later, but in Revelation 19, verse 2, it says, His judgments are true and just. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. This sin that's being described here, this destruction of the earth that's being described here by the nations, them raging against God, it involves them enraged against the gospel demands and against God's people. So when it says the nations were enraged against God, they're angry towards God. How do we understand that anger? Where do we see that being fleshed out? They raged against God in the sense that they sought to destroy the earth with their immorality. As we see in Revelation chapter 19, they sought to, they sought to destroy the earth by destroying God's people, by, by, by persecuting the church. And God is coming to judge that. God is coming to put an end to that, to destroy the destroyers of the earth, those who would seek to destroy the earth with their immorality. Remember, fast forwarding back to our studies in Genesis, we've seen this type of mentality before, right? Before the flood, God has to step in and intervene because mankind has become so wicked God says, I can't, I can't take this anymore. They're destroying the earth, essentially. Right? I have to put an end to their, their pursuits of sin. They, they have gone so immoral, I have to step in and, and purge the earth, basically. Again, God comes here to destroy those who would seek to destroy his creation. These aren't people that are, uh, that are anti-environment. Uh, These aren't people that are seeking to destroy the environmental aspects of the earth. These are ones who come with immorality, who seek to destroy God's creation through their immorality through the destruction of God's people. Which is it's sad to see that, that mankind would be so enraged against God when mankind has every reason to be thankful to God, even those who aren't actively following him. In Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, verse 15, Paul reminds the, the unbelievers of their reasons to be thankful to a God that they don't even worship. Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And Paul shows up on the scene and tells these people, you should be giving glory and honor and worship to God because of how he's already taken care of you, even without your worship, right? (laughs) The nations are being described as being raging against God. And Paul reminds and says, you have no reason to be anti-gospel, anti-church. The God who you do not even worship has been faithful to take care of you. And he gives you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. We can also see this in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything's been given from, from the God that even these people don't even choose 
to worship. And yet the Bible describes the nations as being enraged. A lot of this language comes from Psalm chapter 2, if you want to jump back there real quick. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 parallels this passage and it finds fulfillment later in the New Testament. We'll reference a couple of these passages here in just a minute. In Psalm chapter 2 it says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Again, how do we understand the, the, the enraged aspect of the nations of the unbelievers? Man, they're actively against God. They're act- actively against his commands with their immorality. They're actively against God's people, the church. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And we've already seen in the New Testament this is in reference to Christ, right? Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see the similar language going on here as we see in Revelation chapter 11? The ideas here of the nations being enraged, God's wrath coming upon them for that, even the, the security and safety that comes from those who serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, they take refuge in him. Right? Real similar to the descriptions being given here in Revelation chapter 11. We even see some fulfillment of this passage and what's being talked about in Revelation in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, this passage is referenced. Acts chapter 13, verse 33. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Okay, so there's the, there's the correlation of that passage in reference to Jesus. And then when we jump to Acts chapter 4, we see how to understand the enraging of the nations against Christ. Acts chapter 4, verse 25. This is after some of the believers have been released uh, from persecution. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? That's exactly where we just read from Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Man, the the church here finds encouragement by looking to the book of Psalms and says, man, we, we know this is prophesied that the nations will rage against God's people. Wow, we see that completely being fulfilled with Jesus. He's here in Jerusalem, and people are raging against him, seeking to kill him, part of God's predestined plan, right? And so they say, God, empower us, make us bold in our proclamation of the faith, realizing that this type of persecution is probably going to come upon us as well. You fast forward to Revelation 11, we have the two witnesses. We have that picture of, of enragement against God's people, enragement against the gospel, immorality being celebrated, It's a complete fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2 that the nations will rage against God and his people, but thankfully we will not remain in that state forever. Jesus will come to put an end to that type of behavior. God brings his holy anger against the angry. The punishment fits the crime here. There's similarities in the words that are being used uh, back in Revelation chapter 11, the idea of the nations being enraged and God's wrath coming. The similarities in the words show us that the crime fits the punishment that God punishes in the same manner as the sin that was committed. We also see this in um, Jeremiah chapter 51. 
This is how, this is how God works. Remember, we've seen in the Old Testament some, some parallels and similarities with uh, Revelation. In uh, Jeremiah 51, verse 25, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. This is in reference to Babylon in verse 24. Babylon, which will be pictured again as we get deeper into Revelation. So a lot of similarities with the Old Testament language again. God destroying the mountain who destroys the whole earth. Here in Revelation 11, God comes to destroy those who destroy the earth. He will bring righteous judgment and wrath on a defiant and rebellious world. We can see this judgment in greater detail in Revelation 20 when we get there as God brings judgment upon those who are um, living in their sin. He destroys the destroyers, but the fears will be rewarded. The fears will be rewarded. So back in Revelation 11, they are celebrating the one who has finally come. He comes to judge those who seek to destroy the earth. He comes to reward those He comes to reward those who are described as his servants or his slaves, his bondservants, those that have fully committed themselves to him, the prophets, the saints, those who fear his name, small and great. This is also mentioned in Revelation 19, a passage we're about to read in verse 5. Small and great, God shows no partiality, right? God shows no partiality. It's those who fear his name, whether they're important people, not important people, whether they're great or small. God comes to reward those who have been faithful. I think part of that reward is the satisfaction of knowing that God will vindicate his people, that God will come to judge sin. And we see that reward in greater detail in Revelation 21. So Revelation 20 and Revelation 21 give us even further details about how this plays itself out. But Revelation 11 is certainly about the second coming of Jesus, how he comes to rule and to reign and how he comes to judge Um, both the sinner and the ones that he has saved. And then here at the end of the chapter, we see in verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Every time we've seen that type of element language in Revelation, it's always been surrounding the presence of God, right? And I think, again, here in God's temple, the picture of the ark of the covenant um, reminds us of God's presence as well. Ark of the Covenant was that important, uh, that important piece in the Old Testament that was, that was used in the sacrifice systems. It had the, the cherubim uh, who were covering their faces, and it was where the, the priest would come in and offer sacrifices for the people of Israel, right? It symbolized God's grace and his righteousness. It symbolized his grace, his mercy, but also his justice, right? The idea that sin has to be atoned for, it had to be punished, they're on the mercy seat. And what's a, what's a great picture is that Jesus talks about being our propitiation. And the, the, the word that's used in the Old Testament for the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, it's the same word as propitiation. So Jesus is our Ark of the Covenant. He is our mercy seat. He is the place where sacrifice has been made and sin has been atoned for, right? So we get this picture of the Ark of the Covenant. And man, we don't pick up on this um, because we, don't, we, we didn't grow up in a, in, a, in a Jewish culture at that time that would have never seen the Ark of the Covenant, right? Ark of the Covenant was not visible to people. It, it, was, it, was, it was put away. It was put into the Holy of Holies, and you didn't have access to it, right? The veil sealed it off. The, the veil's torn at this point, right? We see that in the New Testament where the veil is torn at Jesus' crucifixion, symbolizing that we now have full access to God. This is another reminder The temple in heaven is open and everyone can see the Ark of the Covenant because we do have full access to God's presence. Exodus 25, a couple passages I want to read about the Ark of the Covenant and then we'll wrap up. Exodus chapter 25 describes the Ark of the Covenant to us. 25, 22. There I will meet with you, God said, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. I mean, this was a special place. This was, this, was a, this was a holy place where God's presence was pictured. So the Israelites were always longing, when, they were in, when their hearts were right, they were longing for the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of the Ark of the Covenant because it was symbolic of God's presence being with them. God is pictured as ruling and reigning here. In Psalm chapter 99, 
And I want you to see this because I want you to understand why is this even being talked about here? Psalm chapter 99. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. That sounds a lot about what we're that sounds a lot like what we're reading about here, right? Jesus reigning. There being a trembling or an earthquake, which is being described in Revelation 11. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, which are, which are most likely the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. In 2 Kings chapter 19, we get the same idea. 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. So the Jewish understanding This is where God rules and reigns. This is where God's presence is. This is where you meet with God. So for John to see this picture in heaven, the temple being opened, the Ark of the Covenant being visible, man, if you put yourself in that context, the Ark of the Covenant's visible because the veil has been lifted. We have full access to God now. There's an invitation to be with God, to enjoy his presence. He has come to rule and to reign and to be with his people. Unless we think that we should long for a day where we see the Ark of the Covenant again. First of all, we have no idea where it is. It was probably lost when, um, when the first temple was destroyed in the Old Testament. There is a legend that perhaps, um, I think it's Jeremiah in the book of Maccabees, hid it until Jesus comes back. But Jeremiah says in chapter 3, verse, six, chapter three, verse 16 of his book, And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. Together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. And we don't have to look for the day that the Ark of the Covenant shows back up. We're looking for the day that Jesus shows back up, right? Because that's the important feature of the Ark of the Covenant. It represents the presence of God. Here, Jeremiah lets us know, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. All the nations shall gather to it. The presence of the Lord will be there. They shall no more stubbornly follow after their own heart. I told you I wanted to end today with with a time to to celebrate and a time to rejoice and a time to worship. I want to do that a couple of different ways. First of all, let me give you, all right, application. We're going to read these three passages here. Family worship questions, though. I want you to pick out several of your favorite psalms to read together as a family. And then I want you to spend some time discussing some of the reasons that we have to worship God based on these psalms. All right? But I want to read to you real quick an article that I came across this morning that reminds us of even the purpose for gathering here on a Sunday morning um, to regularly apply what we want to apply specifically today. It says, uh, when's the last time you spontaneously stopped, turned your attention heavenward, and said thank you? Songwriter Andrew Peterson has a song that explores a similar question. The song catalogs some of life's good gifts, the sunrise, beauty, springtime, children, love, forgiveness, and asks, don't you want to thank someone for this? Of course we want to, but whether we do it or not is another matter. Peterson is perceptive. There are always a hundred reasons and more to be grateful Yet we often focus on reasons not to be grateful. So instead of being defined by gratitude, God's people give way to grumbling and our thoughts and words are as discontent as our surrounding unbelieving world. What we need is a regularly scheduled restoration of our priorities. Thankfully, Sunday morning comes once a week. A loss of gratitude is a loss of sight. You know the feeling you can't see past today or beyond yourself and the immediate burdens are more than you can bear. The week is busy and your world consists only of what's right in front of you. But then Sunday comes. The best place to address your ingratitude is your local church. These weekly worship services, gatherings of the grateful, train us to see things rightly. How does worship address our ingratitude? If a lack of thankfulness is the result of spiraling into ourselves, then corporate worship spins us out in the opposite direction. We pray lifting our eyes to him who helps us. We sing looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We confess our sins looking to the cross to see the depth of the Father's love. We hear the word which calls us to set our gaze on things above. 
We celebrate the Lord's Supper where we see the gospel rehearsed. We fellowship looking to the needs and interests of others. In other words, corporate worship lifts our eyes away from ourselves and turns them to Jesus. It's an opportunity to remember what we have received in Christ, and when we contrast what we have received with what we deserve, we inevitably respond, thank you. Each week as we participate in worship, our hearts are turned to give thanks in all circumstances, and we begin to find fuel for thanksgiving all around us. When we grow in gratitude, we aren't the only ones who benefit. The Apostle Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Philippians 2, 14-15. A grateful life is a compelling life, and grateful people are living apologetic for God's goodness. Romans one twenty one describes those who don't know God as those who did not give thanks to him. A mark of those who suppress the truth is that they're not grateful and they don't know who ultimately deserves their gratitude. Shouldn't there be a stark contrast in the lives of those who do know God? Shouldn't our lives display a joyful and humble awareness of how outrageously good God has been to us? This isn't a call for chipper, bland, slap a smile on positivity. Nobody buys that. Neither is this a call to ignore life's realities. We have real reasons for sorrow and we experience real pain. Instead, this is a call to sober-minded, awe-gratitude, what G.K. Chesterton calls happiness doubled by wonder. At our best, our lives serve as an invitation to others to ask themselves, in Peterson's words, don't you want to thank someone for this? We want the world to know the answer to Paul's question in 1 Corinthians 4-7 when he asks, what do you have that you did not receive? Christians know that the answer is nothing. We bring nothing to the table but empty hands that are open to God's mercy. We cannot perfectly articulate our gratitude for all that God is and has done for us, and our lives will never be as compelling as we'd like. Our complaints and grumbles bubble up to the surface more easily than we want. That's why we need Sunday morning. We desperately need to lift our eyes together every week. Our hearts require the, remi- the reminder of, our, of what our sin deserves and just how much Christ has done for us. So we get out of bed again on a Sunday morning while the world sleeps, and as we worship, we lift our eyes to say thank you. God will surely grant us the grace we need for another week of loving him, serving him, and depending on him. I wanted to read that because as we talk about the celebration here in Revelation chapter 11, I think we get a glimpse of that each Sunday when we're faithful to attend, when we're faithful to come prepared, when we're faithful to come with that type of mindset, that we are here to give thanksgiving to God for what he has done and what he will do, realizing there's coming a day where we won't have to continually look to the future that it'll be a realized reality that Jesus will begin to reign at some point and we'll be able to enjoy that. Let's close by, um, I got a couple of y'all that are gonna read some passages for us and I want you guys to listen. If you wanna turn there, you can. We're gonna read from Psalm 96, Psalm 115, and then Revelation 19, one through 10. So Rachel, if you wanna start us off with Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. 
You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any do go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. After this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, Praise the Lord! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again their voices rang out, Praise the Lord! The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Then the twenty-four elders and the four living beings fell down and worshipped God, who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen! Praise the Lord! And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, from the least to the greatest. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd and the roar of mighty ocean waves and the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These are true words that come from God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, No, don't worship me. I am a servant of God, just like you and your brothers and sisters who testify about their faith in Jesus. Worship only God, for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.